All right. Uh, welcome to class, everyone. Today, we'd like to welcome our C-SPAN viewers that are joining us, our class today. We're going to be covering a lot today. Uh, this class, for those of you that are watching at home, is a course focused on business and society here at Colorado College. Uh, and this class in particular, we're looking at the making of the U.S. drug war, and particularly how it relates to the prohibition and now the legalization of cannabis and how that impacts co consumer access to this particular substance. I've been doing research ethnographically and historically on the drug war and cannabis legalization for the last two decades. So you get to join us today on our tour of the last 100 years of drug policy. So as you remember yesterday, we were talking a little bit about the impact of culture and science on our approaches to medicine uh, and conceptualizing what is an acceptable substance for medical consumption uh, and what marks those substances that are different from medicine. So today we're going to try to see how those very ideas actually impact the laws that govern our access to these substances. Uh, so we're going to start just over a century ago with the Pure Food and Drugs Act of 1906. This is something that impacts us into the present and really helps to uh, control our access to a whole range of substances. So the law itself is focused on consumer protection, right? We don't want the American public to have access to substances that could potentially be dangerous. This can be something as simple as, uh, as we've seen in the past uh, few years, uh, having uh, contaminated lettuce and other produce on the market that could, could, that could cause a public health scare in the nation. This policy also helped to create the Food and Drug Administration that still continues to govern much of these issues around consumer protections when it pertains to food substances and uh, substances that we classify as drugs. So it required clear labeling of products, and in the early 20th century, this was particularly important as the regulatory structure was not in place to be able to know what we were actually putting in our bodies, right? So you could you know, go to a local vendor and have access to substances, uh, cough medicines, sleep serums, that had quantities, uh, measurable quantities of uh, substances like opiates, right? Uh, heroin syrups uh, for cough, uh, coca in products that we would be using uh, as over-the-counter medicinal products. So the federal government really tried to implement this policy to be able to limit access to those substances uh, and also to protect, to protect us as consumers from being able to consume products that we could deem as safe. Now, this especially becomes important for our class and our discussion because it's the first policy that really starts to bring cannabis into a discussion with other substances that we now deem as more dangerous, uh, at least in some circles, uh, than this other uh, natural plant substance, right? Uh, so particularly those substances that were deemed addictive, including uh, alcohol, opium, cocaine, heroin, morphine, and cannabis had to be clearly identified on products, right? So that we wanted to know as consumers whether we were putting these potentially uh, problematic substances into our bodies. Now we follow that up 
shortly thereafter with the Smoking Opium Exclusion Act, right? We now have a policy in place that's really set up to control opium as, it, as a consumer good, right, that's to be purchased medicinally. However, there was still the presence in the U.S. of opium smokable form. And this was designated as different from the previous conceptualization of opium products uh, as being necessary for medicinal consumption, right? So we start to see now, uh, already in the early 20th century, this sort of division and bifurcation of our conceptualization of substances as being for medicinal use and for non-medicinal use, right? Uh, oftentimes, non-medicinal use gets characterized as uh, quote-unquote recreational use, right? Now, in the case of opium, we have a particularly important case because it's very important as a medicinal substance that many people want access to. However, we also have the presence of a population that is relying on opium in smokable form. Uh, this particular act actually bans the possession, consumption, and importation of opium in smokable form. And I have two other historical uh, events that actually help us to understand and make sense of uh, the Smoking Opium Inclu Exclusion Act. And that's the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, so we're going back even further a few decades. Uh, and that is because the Chinese actually come in uh, to settle parts of the West to, to aid the U.S. in its development of the western half of the United States as laborers, right? So they're doing a lot of the grunt labor work in the western United States, help to build uh, the railroad from connecting the east coast all the way to the west coast. And as such, they also bring the practice with them of consuming opium in smokable form. We start to see, uh, especially in the western half of the United States, places like San Francisco, uh, even places here in Colorado, like in Denver, the establishment of these opium dens where people are, uh, where Chinese people are consuming smokable opium, right? That started to be deemed as a problem by the federal government for a couple of reasons. Uh, because this was seen as something very foreign and different, right? So Chinese men primarily coming into the U.S. and bringing with them a foreign practice that seems to be characterized as a problem really starts to spark the public interest, right? And initially, it starts to create anti-Chinese sentiment that results in 1882, the first real sort of exclusionary immigration policy. And that's to say, after 1882, we're going to ban in the U.S. Chinese immigrants from coming into the U.S. if they're coming in as laborers. If you're coming in as a non-laborer, then you could be uh, exempt from the Chinese Exclusion Act. At the same time, in 1898, we have the Spanish-American War, uh, where the U.S. is able to, as a result of uh, being victorious in the war, is able to acquire several protectorates in uh, Puerto Rico, Guam, and especially for this case, the Philippines, where the presence of smoking opium is deemed as a problem for now having just acquired this new area of the world to govern, right? So as a result, we start to see the intersections now of race and substances start to enter the political discussion. 
This becomes especially important as we just talked about with the Pure Foods and Drugs Act because that limits now access, uh, legal access to opium-based products, right? And as we've seen in the, in the contemporary period, what happens when we cut off legal access to particular substances is we usually see a type of black market emerge where people now have to navigate to access a substitute for the substance that they just lost, right? So there's replacing behavior that takes place and what ended up taking place in the case of opium is those individuals that no longer had access to opium-based products through a legal system now start to frequent these opium dens uh, in these Chinese communities, right? And as a result of that, we start to have these increasing concerns about uh, Americans going into these uh, racialized neighborhoods, these Chinese neighborhoods, and engaging in behavior that's seen as uh, deviant, right? So all of this really coalesces these ideas around trying to uh, control these substances in a whole range of both international and federal efforts to really rein in greater prohibition over these substances. So in 1909, just after the Smoking Exclusion Act, we have the International Opium Commission in Shanghai. Uh, a commission is different from, as you'll see in a second, a convention, because this was mostly a meeting for uh, countries interested in starting to more strictly regulate opium to be able to start to make suggestions for how we were going to navigate at an international level uh, access and control to possession of op opium. That's followed up in 1912 with the International Opium Convention, the first international drug control treaty. And as part of this meeting, right, the nations involved, uh, of which the U.S. is a sort of strong proponent, really start to craft the first international drug policy to say, we're all going to do our part as a global community to really limit the movement of this substance that we see as potentially harmful for uh, our different publics. It also starts to initiate the process for partner countries in this agreement to be able to implement their federal policies to limit the access to these substances. In the case of the US, we end up with the Harrison Narcotics Tax Act, right? Notice that it's not an exclusion act, it's not a, a complete prohibition act. This is an effort at trying to control access through taxation, right? It's a business approach, uh, a regulatory approach to try to really keep the substance in the hands of those that we see uh, as particularly resourceful for being able to keep us from entering a public health problem, right? Uh, one thing to remember is that this is a moment that the American Medical Association uh, and the profession of medicine is starting to become more and more heavily professionalized. So we look to the medical community to weigh in with suggestions for how to best navigate control, access and control of this substance, opium, uh, and a whole range of other narcotics to be able to have it available for medicinal use but also try to limit access of this substance uh, in a non-medicinal use. Uh, so what it did is it specially regulated and taxed opiate and coca products. The reason why this is important, as, you, as you'll see in a second, in a few decades it becomes uh, a sort of uh, metric to be able to launch future drug policies in the U.S. 
So now that we're talking about limiting medical access uh, and also really trying to uh, quell any sort of access uh, to non-medical use, the U.S. initiates the Narcotics Drugs Import and Export Act of 1922, uh, and this creates the policy for oversight for the opium trade uh, and opium consumption. And this is because we do not have the ability to produce uh, opia and coca products in the U.S. These are uh, plants that are really uh, thrive in other uh, global settings. Uh, in the case of the U.S., uh, coca is primarily produced in South America and the Andean region. And in the case of opium products, we have a large access to opium in northern Mexico, uh, but we don't have the ability to really uh, grow uh, and produce opium in the boundaries of our nation, right? So we have to figure out a way, if we're supposed to be able to allow access on a medical front, we have to figure out a way to be able to import these substances and have control over them as they're entering the nation, right? To be able to regulate that access. Another important component of this is that it establishes the Federal Narcotics Control Board uh, as the law, law enforcement entity to police narcotics, right? We'll see this organization start to transform into the present to be able to better navigate uh, our drug laws and to be able to better punish and regulate possession of these substances, right? In particular, it was tasked with policing non-medical consumption as well as engaging in quality control of the narcotics for medicinal use, right? This is back to the Pure Foods and Drugs Act, that if you're going to be allowing access to a substance, it has to be uh, something that won't be necessarily harmful to a consumer ingesting that substance, right? So the Federal Narcotics Control Board was really tasked with trying to figure out a way to do both, right? To say, we're going to limit non-medicinal use if you're going to need medicinal use of coca-based or opium products, we need to figure out a way to best ensure the safety of those products. Now that, that entity morphs into, in 1930, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, uh, and instead of being part of the Department of Justice uh, or any other sort of federal entity, it actually is established as part of the Department of Treasury. We have to remember that these are not outright prohibitions on these products. Instead, they're shaped around tax policy, right? And as such, the entity that polices these practices has to be in, a, in an organization, a federal entity, that is best able to exercise its jurisdiction around these matters, right? So in this case, drug law in the early 20th century is really all based around uh, tax policy, so it has to be part of the Department of the Treasury. So it replaced the Federal Narcotics Control Board. Its first commissioner, Harry J. Angslinger, was at the head of this entity from 1930 to 1962, right? So it's just over three decades of one individual really having control over our drug policy in the United States. Uh, that leads to uh, particularly one-sided effects in, in the case of how we're about to see drug policy transform post-1930, right? The important thing to remember about uh, Anslinger is that he pushed for harsher drug penalties, right, and for further criminalizing of drugs. And in this case, we have something particularly important for our area of study in that 
he really targets including cannabis in this sort of understanding of drug control as a narcotic, to be able to think of cannabis as something more similar to opium and coca than dissimilar. We'll see him again, don't worry. Because he's the chief architect of the Marijuana Tax Act that we see deployed in 1937. Uh, this act was tasked with taxing the sale of cannabis marijuana. Uh, and in particular, Anslinger used stories of problematic use of cannabis in Mexico uh, and in the U.S. Southwest and its association with Mexican immigrants that were starting to come into the U.S. Uh, between, the between 1910 and the 1930s as a result of an ongoing uh, civil war in Mexico. The Mexican Revolution of 1910 uh, to roughly 1920 really sparks the sort of mass exodus of Mexicans from Mexico into the U.S. And as we've already talked about, uh, cannabis consumption was a part of uh, Mexican culture and indigenous uh, Mexican populations. But Mexico also had problems with the consumption of cannabis, and so they exported these negative ideas about uh, what cannabis can do for people's mental health uh, and what it does in terms of uh, these outbursts of violence for the consumers. Now, what Ansinger did is he basically took those stories that were circulating in Mexico and used that as a justification for why we needed to think about cannabis more like problematic substances like uh, opium and coca and why we needed to have more strict enforcement and policing of this substance. Now this, his suggestions really actually fly in the wake of, as we talked about earlier, uh, looking to the medical community to provide guidance on these issues. Uh, so the Mer American Medical Association actually opposed marijuana, the Marijuana Tax Act uh, because it was going to make it uh, highly burdensome for medical professionals to be able to use cannabis as a medicine for their patients. And in particular, the tax was actually imposed on the physicians, the pharmacists, uh, and the medical cannabis cultivators uh, that were being able to you know, grow the supply market for patients that were in need of <coughs> cannabis as a medicine, right? We have an important piece of history that we have to contend with here at the, lo at the local level because the first marijuana tax arrest actually takes place in Denver, Colorado. Uh, Moses Vaca is charged with possession and Samuel Caldwell is charged with dealing uh, and they're in violation of the Marijuana Tax Act because part of what the Marijuana Tax Act imposed is that if you wanted to be in possession of marijuana is that you had to petition the government for a tax stamp to be able to be in possession of that. Right? It's your documentation to say, I'm not in violation of the law, I have this cannabis legally. However, the problem was in order to acquire the tax stamp, you had to present the cannabis you were trying to acquire. And as we'll see in a little bit, that becomes an issue for how uh, this law is actually intended to really stop access to uh, cannabis as a medicine. Uh, in terms of the outcome of the Marijuana Tax Act, Baca, as a, as a buyer, is sentenced to 18 months in prison at Fort Leavenworth. And Caldwell uh, is sentenced to four years for dealing, right? Both in violation of the Tax Act as consumer and as seller. Uh, 
Now, the Marijuana Tax Act also didn't come out of nowhere. It's important to remember that because of our own sort of approach to government in the United States and federal versus state policy, that many states were already on the path to outline access to cannabis, right? This makes it a more favorable national policy to pass, right? Uh, so in this case, we, you can take a look at this timeline. In 1911, Massachusetts restricts the sale of cannabis. Uh, however, in 1913, we start to see more and more outright um, bans of cannabis for any possession, uh, production, consumption. So 1913, California, Maine, Wyoming, and in Indiana are uh, responsible for these first bans. Later in 1915, Utah and Vermont. Uh, in 1917, we have uh, a policy in Colorado to make the possession and cultivation of marijuana a misdemeanor, right? So we are also in Colorado, not just at the forefront of legalization, we're also at the forefront of prohibition as you can see, because it predates the federal prohibition of cannabis. 1923, Iowa, Oregon, Washington, and Vermont. 1927, New York, Idaho, Kansas, Montana, and Nebraska. 1931, Illinois and Texas. And then by 1933, as we're seeing the ramp up to the Marijuana Tax Act, uh, North Dakota and Oklahoma join in the list of states that ban cannabis uh, possession, consumption, and cultivation. We'll take a quick little detour talk about the 18th and 21st Amendments. Uh, these are important pieces of history because they show the sort of uh, clear approach to prohibiting access to a substance and what the federal government has to do when that prohibition actually fails, right? Uh, so as a lot of you are familiar with, in 1917, we have, uh, we have an amendment to the Constitution that prohibits the sale, consumption, possession of alcohol. But after less than a couple of decades, we actually basically have to undo that, right? So we have to approach the fact that alcohol prohibition was unsuccessful, leads to a large black market, the uh, increasing proliferation of organized crime to be able to provide consumers with access to that substance. And the federal government sees that as more of a problem than it's worth to just be able to go back and undo prohibition. And so in 1933, we have the repeal of prohibition, and now the U.S. has access to, as we can see, a whole range and uh, plethora of alcoholic substances. The follow-up policy after the, the, after the Marijuana Tax Act is what's referred to as the Boggs Act uh, of 1954. This in particular becomes important because it's how we uh, navigate post-1950s, the punishment of drug crimes. Uh, so we require <coughs> mandatory sentencing for drug crimes because from a moral standpoint, the federal government really starts to frame drug crimes as a, as a failure of morality and something that we really have to punish from a very harsh standpoint, right? So in the case of cannabis, uh, this becomes particularly important because you know, less than two decades after the, the passing of the Marijuana Tax Act, we have the Boggs Act that really makes, uh, gives the Marijuana Tax Act greater teeth because it now results in a minimum of two years in prison to, uh, to have a cannabis crime under record and it could lead to a fine of up to $20,000. Now if you saw, 
In the case of the first uh, marijuana tax act arrest, that means that Moises Vaca's sentencing would have actually been harsher, right? He was only sentenced uh, to a year and a half, really, of prison time. And under these new regulations, he'd have to be sentenced to a minimum of two years, right? So it creates the logic around uh, drug punishment that requires us to be really forceful with these crimes that are viewed as failures in morality. We'll continue that into the present, really, and something that we're still trying to undo as part of our US drug policy. So we're going now a little to reference international law as it pertains to the UN Single Convention on Narcotic Drugs. This is the follow-up of the Opium uh, Convention that we've already discussed of the early 20th century. So in 1961, as a result of all this escalation of drug control in the US uh, and around the globe, partner countries of the United Nations come together to try to figure out how to best uh, revisit the transnational movement of these substances that we're trying to control and how better to enforce these policies. Uh, so they come up with the single convention, which is an international treaty to prohibit unlicensed, illicit drug production and distribution. Uh, it still allows for these substances to be able to be used, um, cultivated, Right, produced for medicinal purposes. Uh, however, we have a strong emphasis on cannabis, opiates, and coca that are all included in the agreement, trying to figure out how to really put an end to the consumption for non-medicinal use of these substances. An important component of this is that it introduces the scheduling of substances. Right? Scheduling is these ideas uh, framed from a policy perspective and a medical professional perspective of how can we classify drugs uh, as substances that we need to uh, regulate but also still have access to, right? And so the scheduling system for the single convention, convention looks a lot different than I'm sure you've heard about in everyday conversation. Uh, it really uh, has a more circular understanding that uh, there are four schedules. You have to consider the medical utility, potential harm of a substance, uh, and those uh, factors are a way to be able to craft a policy that would allow or not allow uh, medicinal use for the substance, the uh, ability to prescribe in what quantities, uh, and really sets up a, a hard and, and, um, and firm regulatory framework for how to think about the medical community being able to access and the scientific community be able to access these substances uh, for knowledge production around its medical utility. Uh, this is also important in terms of the U.S. because it, uh, around all partner nations, it really governs how governments are able to control the uh, cultivation of these substances, uh, particularly marijuana, for testing to gain a greater knowledge base about the Im impact and effects that this has on persons' well-being and personal health, right? The single convention is expanded through the 1971 Convention on Psychotropic Substances, adds a whole range of substances to the list. Also important, we move away from not just the use of narcotic, but also uh, scientific, lang scientific language that's being uh, really developed and popularized to more accurately talk about the effects of these substances on our brain, right? So we talk about narcotics, this becomes an issue in the history of drug policy uh, because it's a fairly rigid, uh, definition that has to be expanded 
uh, and maneuvered through to be able to include more and more substances in there, right? Uh, so the term narcotic really just means, uh, comes from uh, words meaning to numb, right? And so in that case, it was highly applicable to opiates um, and coca products, but when cannabis is introduced as part of a narcotic substance uh, framework, that becomes an issue, right? And we start to talk in 1971 about other substances like mescaline, like psilocybin, uh, that have different psychoactive effects, the regulatory community has to figure out a way to be able to reconcile the fact that these substances that we're talking about don't all have the same effects, even though we want to be able to heavily restrict and regulate access to them. And then in 1988, uh, the UN follows it up with the Convention Against Illicit Traffic in Narcotic Drugs and Psychotropic Substances, and this is because from 1961 to really the mid-80s, we see a proliferation of uh, large-scale organized crime to be able to provide consumers around the world with access to these prohibited substances, right? Uh, so this is where we see really the, the intensification of large-scale drug smuggling around the globe. And here we get to an important uh, moment in US, legal his US drug legal history uh, because it it is something that we don't really often think about uh, and the type of influence that it has on our drug policy into the present, right? So Timothy Leary, uh, if you're not familiar with, a sort of infamous professor from the 1960s that was a strong proponent of the use of psychoactive substances for a whole range of health benefits, um, including the use of psilocybin, cannabis, uh, acid, um, LSD, to be able to really allow for humans to have uh, mind-altering experience that could be beneficial for themselves uh, and their mental health. Um, now, as a strong proponent of the psychoactive substances, uh, in December of 1965, he actually goes down on a family vacation to Mexico. Uh, he, as a psychoactive substance consumer, he goes out and purchases some marijuana that he's consuming while on vacation. And then he tries to return to the U.S. and re-enter the country through a port in Laredo. Uh, and as he's entering, uh, there's this sort of misunderstanding, uh, and he's subject to a vehicle search. And as part of the vehicle search, uh, border agents discover small amounts of uh, dried flower cannabis and especially seeds in his car. And as such, they charge him with a violation of the Marijuana Tax Act, uh, and he's basically uh, supposed to be sentenced on these violations, as we've seen. However, here you have Timothy Leary, an individual, a professor that's highly educated, that figures he can do some research to get his way out, right, of this legal bind that he's in. And so what he discovers is, and through the work of his legal team, that the Marijuana Tax Act is actually un unconstitutional. Because as I mentioned earlier, Right? If you wanted to be in possession of marijuana, you'd have to get a tax stamp. Right? The only way for the government to give you a tax stamp is you'd have to present the marijuana that you were trying to get a tax stamp for. Now that's an issue because it violates the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution around self-incrimination. Right? You can't give me a, sta a tax stamp if I don't have marijuana that I'm trying to get uh, to pay a tax for, and I can't be in possession of marijuana if I haven't gotten the tax stamp yet. 
So it was causing individuals that wanted to have access to marijuana this self-incrimination, right? Uh, and so he's able to convince uh, the Supreme Court in this decision in Leary versus United States, 1969, that's decided in May uh, to deem it unconstitutional uh, for its violation of the Fifth Amendment. The U.S. does not rest on this, right? So because we have this court decision that basically declares the Tax Act unconstitutional, aside from the whole range of other drug policies that we just talked about that should allow for uh, strong control of the substance, um, <clears throat> we see that for at least a short period, the U.S. is in limbo around its policy for how to prosecute uh, marijuana possession, cultivation, importation. So what it does is shortly thereafter, in September of 1969, it launches Honor Operation Intercept at the U.S.-Mexico border. What, what's happening is that September is the harvest season for marijuana, outdoor-grown marijuana in Mexico, and so they were expecting this large influx of marijuana at the same time that we don't have the, petite, the teeth to potentially really sort of criminalize and prosecute this possession of this substance. And so what the U.S. does as part of uh, the Nixon administration is just send as many officials as it can to the U.S.-Mexico border. Uh, it mobilizes all of its uh, border agents, uh, and it essentially shuts down the U.S.-Mexico border for 10 days to try to stop Mexican marijuana from entering the U.S. And that's important because at the time, uh, something between 70 and 80 percent of the marijuana consumed in the U.S was sourced from Mexico, right? Now that's sort of short-lived because we actually are able to reinforce our marijuana policies very quickly thereafter through the passage of the Controlled Substances Act. And this is probably the one that you've heard about the most as really sort of controlling our drug policy in the U.S., right? So. It's passed as Title II of the Comprehensive Drug Abuse Prevention and Control Act of 1970, uh, and it also does a very important thing as far as international law, right? Because at least prior to uh, the revocation of the Marijuana Tax Act as unconstitutional, we at least had that to be able to be in accordance with international drug policy. However, we had yet to implement the UN Single Convention on a federal level to be able to sort of mirror the policies that we have at an international level with our federal policies. And what the 1970 Controlled Substances Act does is it really pushes the sort of framework, the international framework of drug control into a federal policy. We have what we know of in the US context as drug scheduling on a five schedule scale uh, that's based on potential for abuse and medical utility. Um, and so what we need to do know is that as far as scheduling is concerned, a Schedule One substance has, is deemed as having uh, a high potential for abuse and a low potential for medical utility, right? Those two factors combined make it to where classification of a substance as a Schedule One drug makes it very difficult to access at all through a legal channel. Right? And as we move down the scheduling scale, those factors just are uh, adjusted, right? So a Schedule II substance uh, has a lower likelihood for abuse uh, and has some medical utility until you get down to Schedule V substances that we should be able to 
access uh, with limited uh, government regulation and interference. The other important thing that the Drug Control Substances Act does is that it creates these drug-free school zones um, that will be reinforced through other legislation into the future to make it so that uh, possession or attempted sale of, of prohibited substances in drug-free school zones, that includes parks, that includes a whole range of other areas, uh, child care centers, that that would allow for a harsher punishment of violators of the Controlled Substances Act, right? So, yeah, if I have, you know, a gram of marijuana uh, and I'm, you know, somewhere in an area that isn't considered a drug-free school zone, I'm sure I'm subject to mandatory minimum sentencing. However, those sentences get to be harsher, fines get to be considerably higher in close proximity to these drug-free school zones. Uh, this becomes a really an important part of how we see into the present the drug war uh, targeting particularly uh, communities of color in the U.S., right? Um, communities of uh, Hispanic and Latinx descent and also uh, African-American communities, right? Because they uh, tend to be in close proximity to these drug-free zones, possession of those substances in those areas make it harder uh, to, to have a fair uh, and balanced justice system around drugs, right? The other important thing is that we have the establishment now of the Drug Enforcement Administration in 1973, replacing the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs. Um, and an important component of this is that we see uh, in the decade running up to the Controlled Substances Act, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics moved over uh, as the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs to the Department of Justice, right? So we've left the sort of tax world, right? And we've now entered the world of crime and justice, right? Uh, and so we have greater uh, flexibility in how we exercise the uh, punishment of, uh, of drug violations, but also the ability to better navigate between institutions of the Department of Justice to really give the drug war teeth uh, post-1970. And these last uh, couple of policies that we're going to be focusing on really are, are salient because they start to, to shape what is then going to have to be navigated through uh, as we start to see uh, states try to really push back and swing prohibition into some sort of legal access to the substance, right? So the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986 and 1988 uh, are two policies that really do a whole range of things. They create international pressure for the eradication of drug, pro drug crops in source countries, right? So we're having such a hard time uh, really stopping the flow of these substances into the U.S. Um, we're not seeing a demand, in, uh, a demand reduction in terms of U.S. consumers. How can we limit access to these substances? Well, we now have the ability, using the Anti-Drug Abuse Act, using the uh, UN uh, conventions of 1988 at this point, to be able to go into source countries like Peru, like Colombia, and eradicate coca crops, go into Mexico uh, and fly over marijuana crops and spray pesticides, right? This becomes a, a really volatile issue politically because it involves the human rights violations of a lot of individuals uh, in these source countries, right? If you're starting to see spraying of 
harsh pesticides and chemicals to destroy these crops and their close proximity to indigenous villages or um, communities in Latin America, they're being exposed to harsh chemicals as part of this drug control policy that has problematic effects for the health of that population, right? It also, as some of you in the classroom might be familiar with, pushes uh, and promotes the drug abuse prevention and education platform uh, that we know as the Drug-Free America sort of program and DARE, right? These programs that go into schools now to be able to try to get young people, right? If, if adults are not limiting their consumption of these substances, let's see if we can use an educational platform in schools to educate these students to not become consumers of these substances, right? Um, we also have uh, policies as part of these anti-drug abuse acts to, to really engage in money laundering control, right? If we can stop these, uh, these entities that are engaging in cross-border smuggling, that are bringing these drugs to market, if we can really cut off their supply to cash flow as, a, as part of the sales of these substances, maybe we can start to have an impact on cross-border smuggling of prohibited substances. It also helped to establish the Office of National Drug Control Policy, and this is really, uh, in the present, the, the sort of government entity that really drives and pushes forward how we approach and think about drug control in the U.S., right? Another important component of the Anti-Drug Abuse Act is that it, it now brings cannabis into the mandatory minimum law framework, right? And this is why, for example, we have uh, authors that, uh, authors like uh, Michelle Alexander and the New Jim Crow really argue that post-1980s, we have the sort of reinstitution of the drug war in this really sort of targeted fashion, right? Because if, if cannabis is the most widely consumed substance, if we use these mandatory minimums and we apply them to cannabis and we can use drug-free school zone laws in urban centers to be able to target uh, communities and sentencing, then it makes, it makes the ability to try to push a, a harsh prohibitionist uh, agenda have a really lasting impact on these communities, right? Additionally, as part of that, it also Im implements the harsher punishments and targeting of the crack market uh, at the same time that we see the punishments for other substances like powder cocaine remain relatively stable in the 1980s. And now we go into why this becomes important for us into the present, right? At the same time that we just talked about this sort of rapid escalation of drug control across the board at a federal level, we're also seeing states really grapple with whether this is the best idea moving forward, right? Uh, and so states tar start to engage in uh, legal policies to try to pull back some of the controls around cannabis. And so in the case of, of state decriminalization, many laws start to think, well, can, is there a way we can not have to use federal policy to punish cannabis crime? So we see decriminalization start to take place in 1973, where states like Texas, for example, uh, allow for you to be in possession of up to four ounces of cannabis and have it just be a misdemeanor crime, right? So it's not a, a felony uh, a felony crime, and it doesn't then bring in a whole range of these other policies that we just talked about, right? So that the state can handle 
these violators, keep them in the uh, state or local court system so that they are not subject to these harsher uh, federal penalties. At the same time, in 1996, we see the growth with uh, California uh, and Arizona, the growth of uh, state medical marijuana laws, right? We have to remember that that escalation really cuts off uh, access to cannabis as a medical substance. So states now have to try to figure out how they can use state policy to really start to provide access to these, to this substance as a medicine for people. Uh, and a whole variety of states uh, figure out different ways to approach the issue. Uh, and we still see states into the present uh, trying to implement their own medical marijuana policies to figure out how best to do this, right? More recently, in 2012, we've started to see a range of states not just think about uh, medical use of cannabis, but also just the adult use of cannabis. So how can we more effectively at the state level regulate access to a substance that's prohibited on the federal level and still have the type of um, drug control policy that will limit access to youth, uh, that will uh, have a strong enforcement arm, that will allow for, as we saw, 1904 Food and Drugs Act, allow consumers to know what is safe for them to consume, right? And so this is something that we'll be grappling through in the rest of the class, right? How can we look at this legal history of prohibition, specifically targeting cannabis, to know how the state governments have to really find ways around uh, this long history of escalation of drug prohibition to provide both medical access to cannabis and adult use to cannabis. Uh, so I hope this helps inform our discussion through the rest of class. I hope this was informative for our viewers at home to know where our policies actually sort of originate uh, and how they've impacted our ability to access certain substances and the sort of effects that they've had on our society into the present. Thank you.